This week's episode is brought to you by Blaine the Mono. Hello and welcome to CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And what's that you say? What? M- mono. Oh. <laughs> I'm doing a bit. Gotcha. Rail. Mono. Rail. Is there a chance to try? Never mind. Um, <laughs> I thought we were going to play the sound effects at first. I was like, what? Mono. Nucleosis. What? <laughs> no, but... <laughs> Okay, that could work too. That's something slightly different. Now that we've confused all of the <laughs> listeners. Well, let's just go into the history segment then. It's time for Disney History. For many people, the first thing they think about when you mention Walt Disney World is Cinderella Castle. And secondly, it, the thing they think about is the monorail. And probably like 150 of this probably a bob around boats, but that's, you know, for another day. Um, so the monorail, you know, the sleek and retro futuristic trains gliding through the contemporary resort would uh, play over in thousands of vacation films and promotional shots. And of course, the Disneyland monorail was in operation for more than 10 years before Walt Disney World opened. But even the Disneyland monorail was not the first. Yeah, so Disney has always claimed that the Disneyland monorail was the first daily operating monorail in the Western Hemisphere and the first in the United States. Now, the history of monorails is pretty fascinating and sometimes turbulent. A little travel. A little travel humor. Let's try. Okay, so let's take a ride on the highway in the sky. So before we like really jump into it, let's get some definitions out of the way first. You know, checking some resources, the term monorail was probably used for the first time in 1897 by German engineer Eugen Langen. He created an elevated railway with uh, suspended wagons, and it was called a Eugen Langen one-railed suspension tramway. Not the best name in the world. Not the best name, no. Um, the term monorail is defined as a track with a single rail. Uh, it can be elevated, but it doesn't have to be. So the term should refer to the style of track. Okay, so everyone, let's board Dr. Gary's Swan Boat Time Machine and head back in time to 1820 and visit Moscow. What? Yeah, so you can play some like Tetris music in the background. Do, 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 do. good. So, but apparently, Ivan Elmanov created a quote, Road on Pillars, <clears throat> in Miachikova, Miachikovo. That, that was great. I'm trying. Miachikovo Village. Um, and as we'll see in many of the other early monorails, it's horse-drawn. Not that a horse drew it like an animator, but a horse pulled it. Or okay. something like that. Yeah. So it's pretty hard to imagine. But the rolling trolley used special rails on the viaduct. And this one was also designed to carry salt. 
So jumping ahead one year to 1821, uh, we'll see a patent in the United Kingdom from uh, Henry Palmer. And it was constructed in southeast London in 1824, and was described by Palmer as a single line of rail supported at such height from the ground as to allow the center of gravity of the carriages to be below the upper surface of the rail. <gasps> oh, boy. Exactly. <laughs> so... Imagine baskets hanging off the sides of a mule as it trains, but also imagine the mule as the rail. Mono mule, mule, I don't, I don't know, one of, one of those. Yeah, that could be a t-shirt, the mule I, rail. That's a much better t-shirt than the other thing I said before. Exactly, but that's okay. So it was originally, this, this monorail was originally carrying salt on a very short line. Again, they must have had a lot of salt to carry. So in 1825, the Cheshire Railway was built in Cheshire, Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire, I'm not sure. Sure, for sure. Um, <laughs> it was built to carry bricks from the clay pit works to the River Lea uh, and the barges that were there nearby. And it had to travel over a marsh. So, you know, that way they kept the bricks from getting wet in the marsh. But the monorail was powered by a single horse on the ground that had to walk through the marsh. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, the horse pulled a rope that was attached to the monorail cars. Um, and at this point, the track itself was an iron-topped beam set between wooden supports. So what makes this monorail so special is that it's the first ever to carry passengers. But just during its opening. Uh, it was just a uh, quarter of a mile track. And in 1829, the safety rails were added underneath the running rails to basically prevent derailment, which is, you know, always a good thing. Yeah. Um, another monorail was constructed in India in 1868 that ran alongside the road at ground level. In 1869, a monorail was constructed in Syria that replaced a mule train. Uh, and this one was hauled by a locomotive with double steam boilers. So let's jump across the pond and setting our destination to 1876, we're just in time, you know, get it, get it, to experience the Philadelphia Centennial, another World's Fair because we are World's Fair junkies here. We are. Yes, and this one was celebrating the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, well before Nick Cage ever heard of it, and <laughs> it's the first World's Fair held in the United States. And this is also the fair that's featured in the American Adventure at Epcot, so yay. Um, General Leroy Stone premiered a double-decker, steam-driven monorail. And it traveled on an elevated track that was just 170 yards long and connected the horticultural hall with the agricultural hall. And this was less of a transportation monorail and just more of a ride, basically. In 1877, the Bradford and Fosterbrook Railway began construction in the Bradford, Pen in Bradford Pennsylvania. Uh, General Stone had a hand in it, and it opened in January 1878. It was originally meant to transport oil drilling equipment and the workers on a four-mile line. And eventually, it did convey passengers. And uh, this is a quote. It says, The locomotive is a queer-looking thing. An Irishman here compared it with a gigant gigantic pair of boots swung over a clothesline. The boiler is without a flue, the engine without a piston, and the driver without a crank. I rode with General Stone around corners and up steep grades at 30 miles an hour. Uh, and that quote was from uh, Eli Perkins in February uh, 1978, oh. he said that. No, 1878, he said <laughs> Yeah, 1878. Sorry, <laughs> he wasn't that old. Yeah, our time traveling got off there. Okay, so in January of 1879, slightly over one year of operation, and they installed the third engine because the other two were underpowered. Unfortunately, the engine exploded and six people were killed 
Three people were injured. And this would actually be the worst disaster in monorail history. Okay, so moving on. Charles Lartigue and F.B. Bear would become proponents of monorails at the end of the 19th century. And Latrigue would demo monorails in Paris, Westminster, St. Petersburg, Long Island, and Brussels. Um, although at the time they were still animal-powered. Oh, a lot of yeah. animals powering these monorails, huh? Yeah, you got it. So uh, he did build a monorail in Ireland, uh, the Listall and Ballybunion Railway, which operated from 1888 to 1924. And part of it still exists as a tourist attraction. And the last of Retrigue's uh, monorails was built to run between a, mag- a magnesium mine in the Crystal Hills in Trona, California. And it was a gas-powered monorail and ran on a set of wooden beams. In New Jersey, at the Daft Electric Company, the Enos Electric Company built a demonstration of a suspended railway in 1886. And this would be a very influential design since it used steelwork to create a very open design. Okay, so now we've entered the time when steel would start to be used, and we would see designs that sort of antecede the Disneyland monorail. But we need to sidetrack a little and talk about an oddly named type of monorail called the Bicycle Railway. So tracing the history of the Bicycle Railway is kind of odd, and I ran into two different types of bicycle monorails. Um, One was developed in 1890 by Eben M. Boynton, And Jeff offers a quote from robertkapolovich.com. And George said that name because I never would have been able to. Um, I stumbled. (laughs) So the quote is, Boynton's idea was to adapt bicycle technology to railroading. Conventional trains required over a ton of equipment per passenger, and much of the energy was wasted due to wind resistance and side sway. But Boynton was convinced that a system incorporating a single rail on the ground, plus another on top of the train for stability, would not only be more efficient, but could also transport people at the then unheard of rate of over 60 miles per hour. (laughs) That's pretty fast. It is. Um, That's fast. His locomotive, which was dubbed the Flying Billboard by some critics, weighed four tons and pulled a series of double-decker passenger coaches only four feet wide. In test runs, the train reached 60 miles per hour and could have gone much faster had there been sufficient track for it to reach its full velocity, and the ride was so smooth that the upper rail hardly seemed necessary. End quote. And, and something else I ran across in that same article was that doctors were afraid of the injuries that would happen to if you went 60 miles an hour. To your body? To your body. Yes. Interesting. They were afraid of it. So, All right, so moving on. The, the Boynton Bicycle Railroad only lasted for two years, but it would heavily influence a German design in the next few years. But we still have another bicycle railroad to talk about. Arthur Hotchkiss built the Hotchkiss Bicycle Railroad. Obviously, you can name this after yourself. Clearly. Built that in 1892. And this was a 1.8-mile track that ran from Smithville, New Jersey, to Mount Holly, New Jersey. And this line was actually adopted for real bicycles. And I've seen photos of this. Seriously, it's a suspended track, so the bicycle hung under the rail. There was a seat that could go frontwards or backwards and handlebars, one in the front and one in the back, um, facing whichever way you were going. And obviously they were ineffectual at best. <laughs> They're not going to so let you steer. Yeah, you're going to sit there and hold it to give you something to hold on to while you are pedaling the bicycle along the monorail track. Because you pedaled it and it drove a chain that went up to wheels on the top of the rail and that's what made you go. 
So, for something so confusing, thankfully, only one rail was built, um, with occasional sightings. Um, because if you met someone going the opposite direction, there was no way to pass them. Someone had to back up to the siding so the other person could continue. Which, really in inefficient. Um, exactly. But surprisingly, it survived until 1897. Um, but we're going to take a break here. So on part two of the monorail episode, we're going to head over to Germany to check out a monorail that was influenced by the Boynton Bicycle Railway and influenced the monorails of the future. Yeah. Oh, can you add, like, effects on the end of future? No. Oh. Well, <laughs> Shut down. After five years, you figure I would know better you than that. You think you would. So. <laughs> but we'd like to know what you think about the early history of monorails so that are leading up to the Disneyland and Disney World monorails and others. Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. He's a nerd, he's a geek, because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is an Images of America book on Cedar Point. Yay, because I'm very excited about this. So, you know, I've talked about the Images of America series books before. We've covered the wonderful books by Bill Cuttrell that he's written on the various world's fairs and ones for other theme and amusement parks like Carowinds. And most people refer to them as the little brown books full of photos, the historical ones. But this one, like I said, we're taking a look at the Images of America for Cedar Point. It's written by David W. and Diane Damali Francis. They are members of NAFA, which is the National Amusement Park Historical Association, and ACE, the American Coaster Enthusiast, of which I am a card-carrying member, and so should you be. Uh, they've also written other books about amusement parks, including Ohio's Amusement Parks and the Golden Age of Roller Coasters. Okay, so we covered the history of Cedar Point in a two-episode arc back in episodes 216 and 217. And this book was one of the sources that I used to keep track of the different eras as well as the overall timeline of the park. So it does go back to the earliest days of Cedar Point when it was being used for amusement in the early 1870s. And there are a surprising amount of photos from the first 100 years of the park and the different environs, uh, which is why this book is a must-have for Cedar Point fans. So the second chapter uh, is called The Queen of American Watering Places, covers 1905 to 1918, and it covers some of the first unification of Cedar Point into one amusement area as instead of several different um, beer halls and beer fests and bathhouses. So I do remember that, lots of bathhouses from the early days. The third chapter is The Last Years of the Golden Age, 1919 to 1931. And, you know, one of the biggest heydays for Cedar Point after World War I and before the Great Depression would happen during this time. And we see the transition through all the photographs into more of a resort destination, especially when they started building some hotels. The fourth chapter is called Depression, War, and a Resort in Decline, 1932 to 1945. And this section details the obvious effects of the Great Depression and World War II. Most parks were shuttered, but Cedar Point managed to stay in operation, and the book discusses why. The Long Road to Recovery, 1946 to 1958, is the fifth chapter, and discusses how, again, the park almost saw its end, until a major causeway was built and new owners took over. And the final chapter is The Birth of Modern Cedar Point, 
1959 to 1970. It's the cedar point that we really start to see today and start to identify with, you know, right before the coaster revolution of the 1970s. It's, it's a fitting place to stop. Not the review, but the book. The review's got a little <laughs> I was bit like, more what, time. Done? Oh, so we're done. So it's a fitting place to stop uh, the book. And this section outlines how Cedar Point became, you know, the template for most modern theme parks or thrill parks. Overall, the photos are the big draw, and there are at least two photos per page. Of course, all are black and white. And the book gives you a great overview of the history, including the major people, the families, and the attractions. It's, it's shocking to see how the park evolved from simple bathhouses to one of the premier thrill parks in the world. And as I mentioned, there are photos of the ferries, the dance halls, people enjoying the attractions, the food stalls, the coasters, and so much more. So if you've really got a hankering to learn more about Cedar Point, to invest yourself in the history, check out the Images of America, Cedar Point. Sometimes it's a one, sometimes it's a two. When you gotta go, what you gonna do? It's a bathroom break. A bathroom break. This week's bathroom break comes from Cadet Joe in Los Angeles. So Joe wrote into us and he said, There is one Disney bathroom that you have not yet paid tribute to that is one of my favorites. It is not in the Disneyland Resort out here in California. In fact, it is this Disney bathroom is not actually at a Disney park at all. Scandalous. I know, right? Instead, this one is at the Walt Disney Concert Hall in downtown Los Angeles, just across from the Founders Room. I, this is my favorite part, by the way. He actually goes into detail about the bathroom itself, which I like that we trained you guys to do. It's a stainless steel, stainless steel interior. Uh, is a great complement to the Frank Gehry ex, uh, exterior of Disney Hall, and the piped-in music from the concert hall benefits in the world-class acoustics in this room. Okay, here's wow. what struck me. The fact that you can use the restroom, but still not miss any of the concert going on, <laughs> which blows my mind. It's fantastic, especially so, to have the interior there match the exterior of the concert hall yes yes so thank you cadet joe for sending that in and for sending in some photos sometimes you might see it sometimes you don't hey look what's that it's a five-legged goat In the Pirate's Bazaar gift shop at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, you can find a whole host of pirate-related merchandise to purchase and take home with you, because basically that's what they want you to do. <laughs> of course, some of it may be stolen goods, though, you know, as pirates are often known to take whatever they want. Um, but along the top of the shelves, you'll see a lot of their stolen booty, you know, some of it from other parts of the Walt Disney World Resort. And above you at one point, there's a net hanging from the ceiling. And within the net are some wall decor pieces from the Kona Cafe at the Polynesian Village Resort left over from when they did the remodel. And if we could buy these pieces, we totally would. But instead, they're inside the net, and if you try to take them down, they will yell at you. Yeah, because they're probably screwed down and glued down, and there's cast members watching Oh, I, I didn't and... see that part. I, I was just trying to get them down. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the ninja smoke bomb probably worked well, too, that you let off in the middle of the store. You know. But, oh, I forgot that, too. Ninja Jeff, you can't see me. <laughs> Speaking of something that you can't see, no, no, that's not a good segue. You didn't see this prize coming. You didn't see this prize coming. Boom. Oh, that's where we should have gone. Okay, so we're at the part of the show where we talk about the prize winner for the year of a million or so limited time cadets, which you know, kind of funny. We're in our second year of the year. Haha, ha, very funny. Um, <laughs> I don't get it. 
I know, I know, I know. Not that we're trying to be Disney-like in a way, but, <laughs> you know, we're giving away a prize every week, and all you have to do to enter is email communicorweekly at gmail.com. That's communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name and address and your birthday so we know, of course, where to send the prize, and we have a good statistical look of how old and young all of our listeners are. No, we're not doing that. Not at all, are we? Well, you're not. I'm not. That's true. That's true. I'm, I'm just curious. That, so. Just curious. <laughs> okay, so this week's prize, which is um, it's a Communicore Weekly fi- a prize pack. Yes. I wanted to correct. say fanny pack, but we ran out of fanny We packs. ran out of those, and I refused to wear them. Exactly. Okay, so this week's winner is Justin M. from Marietta, Georgia. Hooray! Yay! Get some East Coast love on this time. That's Heck right. yes, so, right? Um, so... Justin, keep a lookout for your prize pack. Let us know when you get it. Send us a photo. Post on Facebook, Twitter. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute. They posted anywhere on social media. Yeah, whatever. We'd love to see it. Exactly. So, okay. So we've reached the end of the show. Thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Yeah, however you get the show, whether you're watching on YouTube or on iTunes, leave us a comment, give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. You can email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to ask us any question or just say hey what's up core of course you can always like us on the facebook at facebook.com slash weekly follow us on twitter instagram and periscope i'm at imagine Erding. he's at jeff heimbach and of course you can leave us a message on the communicore weekly goat line at 424-785-4628 and make sure you visit the communa store on our website which is communicoreweekly.com and order some great t-shirts and get a copy of communicore weekly the musical and there's still plenty of time to get your official cadet membership card and official Communicore Weekly stickers. Just send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And again, it's on the website. Don't try to write it down when you're driving. Yeah, and is there an expiration date on the cadet cards? Uh, no, no. They're oh, good, good forever. Good, then we don't have to do that. So, okay, exactly. Good. Well, for Jeff Heimbuck... I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Now we're